Welcome to Pontifact. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. But we are not doing that this week because we are talking all things Athanasius. It is the largest and greatest Athanasius interlude you've ever heard. The Athanasius interlude. And with us today to do that is our very, very first and very special guest, Jonathan Adley from the History of the Cops. Hello, everybody. Hello, Jonathan. We are so excited that you are here to talk about Athanasius because we can never stop talking about him, apparently. He's going to be with us forever, it seems. Indeed, he will. But before we get into that, tell us about you, tell us about your podcast, and what is a copt? Well, so my my podcast, uh, The History of the Copts, tells the story of the Copts from the annexation of Egypt by Rome through the Arab conquest of Egypt and hopefully, if I do this right, all the way to uh, 19th, 20th century. So some may know what Copts is. I have been listening on and off to, to your podcast, guys, and it's very great. And I remember you, one of your first episodes, even said there's two types of popes. Coptic popes and the popes that everybody knows. So the Copts are the native inhabitants of Egypt. You know, basically in Roman time, it was another name for Egyptian. In our modern time, they are the, the Christian minority in Egypt. Uh, the word itself literally means an Egyptian. It's derived from the Greek name of Egypt, which is Egyptos which then when you Arabize that and then translate it into English, going through Latin, it becomes Copts. Actually, I, I've been listening to your show for, for quite a while now, and it is really great and really interesting. And it is pretty much a perfect companion piece to what we're talking about since we have a fairly Western focus. But you you cover all of the other pieces and it intersects so much that it, it was really, really exciting that you wanted to come and do this. So. I mean, the history of Christianity is a lot of moving pieces, and, you know, it's really hard to uh, to only look at one piece without all the other pieces going, going was it? Absolutely. And that means a lot of research for you, and a lot of research for me, and a lot of fun for Fry, hopefully. <laughs> so, um, our first question, let's talk about what the relationship is of the Coptic identity and what we've covered so far in the podcast of, like, the early church, because we're up to, right now, the end of the 4th century. So. How does the Coptic identity tie into this time period? Are there any interesting figures or relationships that you want to draw attention to or talk about? Yeah, so so the Copts or the Egyptian slash Alexandrian church uh, played a huge factor in all the, the early church councils. And a lot of the important theological development in historical Christianity was con connected there one way or another. So, for example, you got Origen who was the subject of, you know, uh, um, a church council, whatever is a heretic or not. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you guys are going to get to him soon. He, he was a brilliant early theologian who's considered like the first academic biblical scholar. And he came out of the Alexandrian church. To this day, Origen is, is, is a source of controversy on whether he's a saint or a heretic or somewhere in the middle. 
Absolutely. Uh, we, we just came back to Origin again in episode 41, but we've also talked about him and his first condemnation in episode 20 under Ponchin. How long the confusion of his status has been going on. He came up in the Council of Nicaea episode because that whole alleged account that he had himself castrated as an expression of religious piety and so that he could tutor both young men and women, which is exactly why the church was so freaked out about self-castration at the time. Yeah. And you also have Antony, you know, known as the father of monasticism. He was an Egyptian and, you know, monasticism as a movement developed and took shape in the deserts of Egypt. And then, lastly, the topic of this podcast, Asenasius, he was an Egyptian, and so was the subject of his scorn, Arius. <laughs> scorn. Yeah, uh, I mean, Arius is actually Libyan, but he lived in Alexandria, so I'm counting him. Uh, so basically, as you move into your narrative, the Alexandrian patriarchs would be the focus of one theological controversy into the other. Up until, uh, I would say, the reign of Justinian, the emperor. Absolutely. I mean, right now, I'm in the research up to about Leo the Great, and I think I've talked about Alexandria every episode from now till then, so we're going to be with them for a while. So let's talk about Athanasius. How do we understand Athanasius as a person? What do we make of his personality, his motivations? Do we believe that he was motivated by personal power? religious zeal, rebellion, principles, or a combination of all of these things? Because he's sometimes hard to nail down who he really is. Yeah, and that's what's kind of fascinating about him. But, you know, to really understand him, we kind of have to put ourselves in the shoes of a 4th century bishop in that Christian empire. So he was both a civil and a religious leader. He was probably the most powerful man in Egypt at least Alexandria, and you couldn't just separate, you know, Asenasius the Patriarch from Asenasius, the civil leader of the, one of the richest provinces in the, in, the, in the Christian Empire, in the Roman Empire. And on top of that, in the height of his career, monasticism was also in its heyday, and Asenasius was seeped into this culture, or, you know, more appropriately, counterculture. So his political motivation, so actually a lot of the time, when people look at his political motivation, that Arius' discussion dominates that side of his personality. But for the most part, his political motivation was actually inside Egypt to contain and eliminate a rival church hierarchy called the Miletians, which I think we might get into later on. Yeah, we can definitely talk about them. You know, as Anastasius says, the Pope Alexandria, it was extremely important for him that all the bishops and the clergy in Egypt be in the same page. All of them looking toward Alexandria and the Bishop of Alexandria as the person who sets the tone. The Miletians, they kind of wanted to do their own thing. And once you understand his relationship with that group, a lot of his political stance would make a lot of sense. The more famous struggle with the Aryans, I am personally convinced that on that front, he was entirely driven by principle. And you really can't be driven by anything, as we would get to it. He was pretty much for his entire life. He was being chased by one person or another. <laughs> yeah. No one would be able to do that unless he truly believed in his heart of heart that, you know, Jesus Christ, the Word, was fully divine and through the monastic influences all around him. And, you know, he grew up too with the Great Persecution. He was a teenager when the Great Persecution ended. So all that kind of shaped him 
to be one of looking up to the martyrs of the great persecution and giving up the world to, uh, in the monastic, you know, control culture. So he is willing to go to great lenses to uphold his convictions. I mean, eventually, the Miletians, his internal political opponents, and the Aryans, they kind of came together and made common cause. So, in a way, it blurred uh, the motivation of Athanasius, and, you know, it gave a rise to a period of his career that you can label it as Athanasius the politician. But once the Miletians lost influence, and when he dealt with the Aryans alone, Athanasius actually became, and I'm using actually one of his, you know, loudest modern critic, uh, Timothy D. Barnes, he called Athanasius at this stage uh, a statesman. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's interesting as well because the Miletians, we see them basically turning to the Arians after the Council of Nicaea, where they were given a relatively good deal by the rest of the perspective of the church. And yet we still see them fighting so hard against that structure and refusing to give up. And so therefore turning back to the schismatics, basically, because it would get them what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, you know, look in the head that Alexander, the, the patriarch of Alexander before Athanasius, he was happy to make a deal with the Miletians. He didn't care if their bishop stayed on as bishop. He didn't care if their clergy stayed on as clergy. So long as they accepted that inside Egypt, the bishop of Alexandria is, you know, first among equals or primacy or whatever you want to call it. Oh, that's really interesting. And it looked like they said, yeah, we'll take that deal. But once Alexander died, they kind of, they wanted to put their own man as the patriarch of Alexandria. And that's where things kind of broken down with Athanasius and it went from bad to worse, pretty much. Definitely. All right. So I've been listening to Bree tell me about Athanasius for the past forever now. Five ever. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while. Um, And I do have to wonder, like... Originally, it was said that he he didn't want his initial appointment as bishop. He he left. He fled. So why didn't he just accept his depositions and when he was kicked out, just stay away? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Like he didn't want it, so now when he told them, you know, go out, why would he fight so hard for that? But ultimately, it came down is that you know him reading his initial appointment is basically a litmus. You know, Asanasius ended up winning and becoming this great figure uh, where everybody, you know, attributes all kind of things to him. But I truly believe that mess came about is because his election was highly contested. Like I said, the Miletians did not want Asanasius. So they fought really hard to have anybody but Asanasius. So, and this group essentially blocked his election for three months. They would not, in order, at least this is the Alexandrian way, in order for, for the Synod to confirm the patriarch, it has to look like it's unanimous. So if you have one group that are really hardcore, forming a hardcore opposition, they can block the election for a long time. So these guys blocked the election for three months. Then to break the deadlock, a different group of bishops, probably around 50 or so, took Athanasius and basically consecrated him as a patriarch without these Miletian bishops, essentially kicking them out, saying, you know what, guys, you're not part of this anymore. Oh, we're going to see so much of that. <laughs> yeah. And then at this point, Athanasius may have fled 
to avoid being, you know, in a situation where a group of bishops consecrated him, but another group did not, and he would be in this middle ground where he's not a patriarch, but he's still a patriarch. Or, more likely, I think that, you know, when people wrote the history later on, they had this gap, and they were like, what happened to this gap? And this whole fleeing thing came about to explain it. That's interesting, too, because one of the sources we used when we did Athanasius's full biography on Patreon, we looked at Apollinaris, who, when he describes it, he talks about how his election was entirely unanimous, that the people just threw up their hands and said, give us Athanasius. But clearly, he conveniently left out all of the Miletians in that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, so this period of history, it's really difficult because if you look at what Darian synthesizer wrote, and some of the stuff survived, it looks like, you know, no one wanted Athanasius and only six bishops actually consecrated him. But if you look at the other side, it looks like, hey, everybody consecrated Athanasius and there was only like three Miletian bishops who did not want him. It's a letter-writing campaign of shade. Yeah. So, so that's why, you know, I actually, I liked Asenesius for a long time, uh, even before I started this podcast. And what, he, he's a beautiful writer. If anybody never read his stuff, I highly recommend it. But in one, in one of his letters, he pretty mentions very clearly that his election was contested, but he conveniently didn't mention the Miletians, that they were blocking it. But he said, because he was almost 30 years old, and not 30 years old yet, he's like 29 that his election was a problem because based on a, and a canon law that he has to be 30 year old. And there, then there's a history, Suzuman Histories, who is also very Athanasius friendly. You kind of have to if you write the history after he died. So he gives the most detailed description of his consecration, including, and this is really important, the Mauritian slash Aryan side of the story. And their side of the story, 54 bishops were debating. And only, like I said earlier, seven broke away and consecrated Athanasius. So, you know, some people would say, well, maybe the Aryan side is, is the right one. But if you actually look at the names of the bishops that we have, and uh, after the consecration, Athanasius pretty much was accepted as a legitimate patriarch, it's probably the other way around, where, you know, 54 bishops ordained him, while seven Miletian bishops were absent. And, you know, his latest biographer... Timothy D. Barnes, he actually brings a whole different side of the story where he says he says that Athanasius was not even in Egypt at the time. He was outside of, yeah, outside of Egypt, and that three months gap happened because he was not in there. They had to wait for him. But to go back to the original point, I don't believe Athanasius for a second would have said, I don't want the office of the patriarch. You know, the, the whole area thing was going on for a while before him the entire reign of Alexander. And he really believed Arius to be not only mistaken, but as he put it in his own word, he was staring the garment of Christ. So naturally, Athanasius since day one was all in. And, you know, accepting that his removal would mean, at least in the, the monastic culture of the time, that Athanasius had abandoned his cross that was given to him uh, for his flock salvation. So he was hardcore and he didn't run away. Fair enough. It's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, we can have a little bit more faith in his zeal and his dedication. So let's take a little moment to look at the Miletians, because we've discussed the Miletian schism in our episode on the Council of Nicaea. 
as they were another major concern after the Arian controversy, and started by Miletius, the bishop of Lycopolis, who had been deposed by Peter, who was the predecessor of Alexander, the predecessor of Athanasius. And so we have this schism breaking out in Alexandria. So let's talk a little bit about what the main points and concerns were for the Miletians, and why, at the Council of Nicaea, when it was ruled that Miletius could keep his bishopric, but that he wouldn't be permitted to ordain clergy outside of Lycopolis, he still goes and joins with the Arians. So what is their main thing that they want to achieve? What is their main concerns? Why do they become such a big deal in this time period? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of Asenesius's troubles or the things that he got in trouble for, at least initially, had to do with the Miletians. So, you know, Alexander, after the Council of Nicaea, when the Arians more or less got excluded from what is considered orthodox, he dropped the hammer on the Miletians. There is no more Arian clergy allowed in. Uh, they basically got kicked out. And it wasn't there yet, but it was very close that someone would say there was no Arians left in Egypt on Asenasius became patriarch. Wow. Yeah. Alexander and Athanasius were like the high, the loudest voices of opposition to these guys because they had to deal with him for like 10, 15 years before the, the Council of Nicaea. And it wasn't just, you know, abstract theology that they were arguing about. It was basically Alexander is the boss. He's the Bishop of Alexandria. And he got this priest doing his own thing and not listening. So there was more than the abstract theology when it came to Alexander and Arius, you know, interactions. But of course, outside of Egypt, the Arians were still strong. The Miletians, on the other hand, they were a very big problem for the Church of Alexandria because they undermined the basic authority of the Church and basically chipped away at the legitimacy of the Patriarch of Alexandria. As he mentioned, Miletus was a bishop in Upper Egypt during the Great Persecution. And to give him credit, while a lot of bishops ran away uh, or hid away, including Peter, the, the Coptic Pope at the time, Miletus stayed around, and since there was no patriarch, the patriarch ran away, he ordained bishops to replace uh, four bishops that were, uh, that were martyred under the Great Persecution. So this action of ordaining bishops completely upended the Egyptian way, so to speak. You know, there... Only the Patriarch of Alexandria were allowed to ordain bishops. Peter eventually came back. He excommunicated Miletus. And basically, and, and at this point, Miletus, instead of like taking a corner, he doubled down and ordained even more clergy. So very quickly, two rival churches from the Egypt. And they completely agreed on the theology. There was like no differences at all between them, except like a minor difference. But... There was two hierarchies. You got the guys who got ordained by Miletus, and they basically answered to him. And then you have the guys that were ordained uh, by Peter. Peter was eventually martyred as well. And Miletus, surprisingly, survived the great persecution. But this initial stance of not running away and staying made the Miletians uh, to be remembered as the ones who stayed around during the tough times, while the Alexandrian church ran away. This was obviously a misrepresentation, but it, it worked because uh, the militians, they used the, they were the first to use the title, the martyr church. And that resonated with a lot of people in Egypt who just came out of the great persecution. 
when when Peter died, there was a guy in the middle who kind of didn't last long. But then there was Alexander. The Miletians were a massive problem for Alexander, and then Asenesius after him. Both of them tried everything to get the Miletians back in the fold. Since, you know, the Miletians, like I said, they theologically were essentially the same. There really weren't a lot of canonical reasons to say, to, to do to them what had been done to the Arians. They had a minor difference about what to do about admitting those who lapsed during the Great Persecution. But, you know, it wasn't big enough of a difference to stand out. It's kind of like the Novations. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like the Novations or the Donatists. But the Donatists, uh, you know, have lots of other drama going on. <laughs> they sure do. So, you know, Alex uh, Alexander and Nicaea tried to make a deal. He essentially said, you guys can come back as long as you accept the authority of the Patriarch of Alexandria. You can still have your clergy. You can still have your city. Uh, but in the future... The only person who's allowed to ordain bishops inside of Egypt was the Bishop of Alexandria. And that deal worked while Alexander was alive. You know, Alexander was well respected. He compromised with them. But once Alexander died, like I said, they really wanted to get one of their own to be the Bishop of Alexandria. And according to some sources, they actually ended up ordaining someone to rival Asenesius anyway. So for a brief moment, we got Asenesius being the patriarch of Alexandria, and you got some other guy who don't know, don't know, even know his name, was also the patriarch of Alexandria, according to the Miletians. But, you know, Athanasius obviously ended up trying to do the same to them as Alexander did to the Arians, but he was a little bit sloppy. He was very young at the time, and, uh, you know, they responded by making common cause with the Arians. And this escalated very quickly to this meeting with uh, Constantine and all the, the councils that deposed him. And it almost got confused between, is that about the Arius and the Arians or is it about the Miletians? Yeah, it's it's very similar to Novation. We have like a Coptic antipope situation going on where it's a, it's kind of a hierarchical schism rather than a theological one because there was no heresy there either. So it's interesting. Yeah. One of the big things when we've been talking about Athanasius at this point throughout the, the various stages of his life, we've talked about him as a litmus test, really, that reflects the character of the empire and the state of power in both the empire East and West and religion East and West, you know, where he was, who supported him, who came against him, could reveal a lot about the strength of Christian orthodoxy the level of intervention that an emperor had in religion, the influence of papal primacy, and even the state of the empire as a whole. So let's talk a little bit about these pieces. So first, let's talk about orthodoxy versus heresy. We'll talk about Athanasius and Arianism. In our episodes, we focused on what the rising Arian influence looked like for the Western Empire, with specific focus, obviously, on the Church of Rome. So how did Arianism actually look as it was rising for the church in the East? We have Alexandria as ground zero for Arianism. When Arius challenged Bishop Alexander's preaching on the nature of father and son as being too close to Sibelianism. So do you think there's a reason in particular that Alexandria is where this happened? Yeah, so but there is a couple of things that made Alexandria that place to be for the Arians to take hold and spread quickly. One, as you mentioned, 
it was a major, if not the major, cultural center of the empire. There is some big air quotes in here. You know, academic Christianity was very, very strong in Alexandria. There was all kind of strong philosophical movements at the time, which competed and influenced Christian thought. So naturally, uh, if you got like an average priest or an average clergy, they were extremely sophisticated on a theological level. And they thought really deep in things like the nature of Christ, the plan of salvation, the relationship between body and soul, and all kind of difficult theological questions that, you know, very hard to answer, especially at the time before all the councils. And coupled that was when the Great Persecution hit, like I mentioned earlier, it devastated the hierarchy of the church in Egypt, specifically the bishops. The Edict of Milan was in 312, and Sanasius became the Pope of Alexandria only 16 years after that. So, with the absence of the bishops, the local priests, Arias being one of them, they basically ran their own churches independently, both on a practical level and also on a theological level. So, you got the theological sophistication on one hand, and you got no bishops keeping things uniform, then you're bound to get an Arius one way or another. When the teacher is out of the room, the students will cheat on their tests. Pretty much. Alexander and Athanasius fought furiously for a Hamusian orthodoxy, and we can say they won the day, give or take, for orthodoxy at the Council of Nicaea. We have Arius being exiled to Illyria, and we have the church moving on. If it were not for Arius's ideas inspiring other people, like prominent bishops, like Eusebius of Nicomedia, do you think that the force of Alexander and Athanasius would be enough to put an end to Arianism? Yeah, I would definitely argue for that. More accurately, I would argue that you know, Eusebius of Nicomedia's political position at the least, allowed for Arianism to be tolerated. Fry hates Eusebius of Nicomedia. I do. I absolutely do. I kind of have hate-love relationship about him. I am impressed by his achievement, but I do not like his theology. He's a pain in art, for sure. Yeah, but he was good. He was very good at what, he's, what he did. If you look from the outside as this whole thing as, you know, a Game of Thrones political maneuvers, you know, Eusebius of Nicomedia was the best. He was good, yeah. He made all of his connections. So, I, I don't know how much you guys dug deep in the career of Eusebius, uh, but, like I said, he was a major political player, and by far, the most powerful bishop in the empire under Constantine, and then his son. So, by the time that uh, he died, he actually removed and excommunicated the bishop of Antioch, the bishop of Alexandria, the bishop of Constantinople, and was about to remove uh, the Pope Julian in Rome, but he ended up dying before he actually do it. He was very, very ambitious, for sure. So, you know, there was tons of, and I'm going to do some air quotes again here, unorthodox ideas at the time. The Mauritians in Egypt, you got the Donatists in North Africa, uh, for example, but none of these guys ever moved beyond their locality, except Arianism. And I would argue that Arianism survived and arguably thrived, at least in the Germanic tribes, that was mostly due to what Eusebius was doing, not anything Arius had done. Eusebius, why are you like this? <laughs> yes, so, you know, and, and we have to be, you know, to be accurate, 
actually Eusebius and Arius ideas, they varied slightly, but they found common cause because you have Asenasius and a bunch of his like-minded bishops, they were insistent on specific phrases. And anybody who did not like these phrases, but you know, had their own very slightly varied phrase, they basically made common cause. So, you know, Eusebius was more of a semi-Arian. I don't know, you know, all these kind of labels kind of get confusing when you really dig deep into it. But, you know, once he died, once Eusebius has died, the Arians, at least as a sophisticated theological movement, they completely disintegrated because you got all these guys who had all the slightly different expression trying to make the movement about their own expressions, not the movement you know, we just want to take Asenasius out, and we don't like his phrases. So, yeah, I would argue that Eusebius was not inspired by Arius, per se, but he found common cause with him to combat the strict adherence of the specific phrases that Asenasius was advocating for. So, who can we argue actually had a stronger influence on Christianity as a whole, Athanasius or Eusebius of Nicomedia? So, I know we've been talking a lot about the Arians and the Nicomedians. So, let's, if we take this whole thing out, and, you know, just an alternative universe when it never happened, of all what Athanasius did in his career was to write the life of Antony, uh, which was the conduit behind the very quick spread of monasticism from Egypt to the rest of the Roman Empire, then Athanasius's contribution in the big picture would have been immense. You know, can you imagine a historical Europe without monasteries? I can't. And Athanasius, at the very least, he contributed to that development. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we are definitely going to be looking at monastic culture quite a lot as we go. And it's interesting, too, because we see that Athanasius was very, very inspired by Antony, the leader of the Desert Fathers. And we talked a lot about that on Patreon, too. So if you haven't heard, check that one out. Let's talk a little bit about Athanasius and the Empire now, because that was a lot of the main narrative of our story. So in your episodes on Athanasius and the Arian controversy, you point out that the increasing involvement of Emperor Constantine in matters of the church had the effect of implementing new aspects to the role of bishops, namely that they were adopting new influences and authority in state politics and the importance of a bishop's guidance in the community. Do you want to elaborate on this a little bit and talk about maybe the most impactful consequences of the politicization of the church? Yeah, I mean, so first, if you want to see, want to talk about the impact of the church being involved in, in, in the politics of the empire, then, you know, if you follow Edward Gibbon's, you know, thesis, then that increased role of the church basically led to the fall of the Roman Empire. So I don't necessarily agree with that thesis, but it is very clear that the church and the state dynamic, starting with Constantine and his successors, definitely transformed both the church and the empire. So I think a different podcast may address the changes in the empire. For our listeners, I think we probably should concentrate on the changes in the church. Basically, at least in the East, the church was faced with two options. Either remain in the world slash empire and contribute to the development and improvement to its government, or retreat into the desert. In the time of Athanasius, that was the crossroads. You had one road leading toward the palace, 
and the other leading toward the desert. And you have the figures of Asenasius, who took the road that wended through the palaces, and Antony, who retreated to the desert. And you got those two guys, they are the perfect archetypes for those two roads. So I think if you look at Christianity today, you obviously got both schools. But in this pivotal moment of history, it became possible to imagine a world where the church can provide the moral foundation of the government. And once you guys get to Justinian's, and I don't know if you're going to talk about this law code, it becomes very clear that his, that law is, is based on the fundamentals of Christianity. So that concept of, you know, the church providing the moral foundation of the government, that was essentially ingrained in Western civilization for a thousand years after, until the age of enlightenment. And the same guiding ideology behind the caliphate in the East was also taken. And you have the same guiding ideology also going on in the caliphate, also obviously replacing the church with the Islamic scholars. And if you if you want to point to like a moment in history where you're like, you know what, I can see where this is starting to happen, it's right there in the time of Asenasius. And we can argue that that's still happening all the way to today. I mean, most most Western countries in particular still make their laws based on Christian morality and Christian ideology. So... I often find myself wondering and considering the reciprocal impact of this. Like, does the politicization of the church move the church forward in a way that couldn't have been accomplished without imperial intervention? Like, could the church have resisted what is happening here with the emperors? Yeah, I mean, it would have been hard. But the, I feel like the monastic movement is essentially the cure. If you're going to consider that a disease, and this is arguably if it's a disease, if it's a bad thing, you know, and it's going to be a bad thing no matter what, or if it's a good thing that was executed badly on. But anyway, the monastic movement offered the option to resist that kind of church and state uh, integration, if you want to call it that. And at least in Egypt during the time, everybody understood that if you wanted to be close to God and a holy man and stay out of politics, then you became a monk. But if you were talented and still a godly man, and you don't mind being involved in worldly politics, then you became a bishop. So you got all this development going on. And then in the 5th century, and I'm sure you guys can get to it, when all the Chalcedon and the other great stuff happens. So soon. The church in Egypt would see that kind of imperial interventions and very much say, no thank you. And the monks would actually be the ones who are leading the effort that by the end of this period, the church was the monks, and the distinction between I want to get involved in politics, so I'm not going to be a monk, or I just want to be a, you know, a holy man of God, so I'm going to be a, a monk, that essentially goes away. And in order to become clergy, you had to become a monk first. But when that happened, the church in Egypt was completely out of the empire. Uh, it, it was completely isolated. They were doing their own thing. If they wanted to be integrated in the empire, there was no way they could have done that. So yeah, I think ultimately the church would have been okay without any imperial interventions. And there was a lot of ways to step away from the trappings of power. And I, I feel like, you know, the most obvious way would have been monasticism. It's an interesting point, especially considering how the church would have had a substantially different character than what it is today. 
we would be running an entirely different podcast. If the church stepped back towards monasticism as a whole, we can make arguments for so many things. Like we could say that maybe there wouldn't have been a Christian crusade or church-sponsored empire or colonization. It certainly would change a lot about later relationships with kings and rulers with the Pope, which we are going to cover in so much detail. So Christianity could have been incredibly significantly less intrinsic to the larger social identity. So maybe one day it will be our interesting thought experiment in alternative history. Yeah, that's a good podcast, Alternative (laughs) History of Christianity. Oh boy, that sounds like an April Fool's joke waiting to happen. Oh, we missed it. We realized just a little too late that we actually had an episode coming out on April Fool's Day, and I went, oh, we could have done something with that. So what impact did imperial interference in Christianity have on the empire? We have this relationship with Athanasius as a reference to imperial intervention, and that's why we see so much happening with him and the different emperors of our time. We have Constantine, Constantine II, Constans, Constantius II, Julian, Jovian, Valens, it goes on. So how does that represent the church interfer- or the imperial interference in the church. As I mentioned before, you know, this was that moment where you can point to where the church and, and, and the government became so close together and diverse, you know, rendered to Caesar, what is to Caesar, it was really tested. So uh, very briefly, uh, you have your Patreon episode, and I'm sure we went through the basic outline of the Sanasius in there. So very, very briefly, just to sketch out, what was Athanasius and what his interactions with the various emperors are, you got Constantine the Great, who sort of exiled him, but not really. So he he kind of removed him from Alexandria, but it was not called exile, because he was still a bishop, and he did not appoint someone to replace him. And that was mainly to the machination of Eusebius of Nicomedia. And the sticking point for that removal was about you know, a very sensitive topic as far as Constantine is concerned, which was the grain of Egypt, than anything theological. So when he died, Constantine had three sons that basically fought over the empire in a long, protracted battle. In the middle of that fight, Athanasius, as, you know, a, a very powerful man in one of the richest provinces in the empire, he was in the middle of it, regardless if he wanted it or not. He got one son who really liked him, and that was Constantine the Second. He ended up dying pretty quick. He got another son. He sort of liked him, Constance, but he eventually died too. And then the last one that eventually came out on the top and ruled the, the whole empire, Constantius, he hated Athanasius. He was so grumpy. There was tons of intrigue in there. And, you know, you have both Aryan leanings of the emperor, you got some geopolitical considerations, and you got Eusebius of Media involvement, all of these things played a role. My podcast has like five episodes on it, so you know, so I'm skipping all these kind of intrigues right now. But eventually, Athanasius would be exiled again, and he would end up in Rome with Pope Julius. Uh, and then Pope Julius' situation at this point, and I'm sure you got to it, was he was trying to be more involved, but it was kind of hard for him because no one was paying attention to him. So he took Athanasius, you know, under his wing, and then there was lots of political pressure and the fight between the two brothers, and then Athanasius ended up, when, when the son that sort of liked him, 
you know, died, we got uh, Constantius putting an ascending execution order against Asenasius. And uh, at this point, Asenasius would escape inside Egypt in the monasteries rather than outside Egypt. He stays there for a while. Constantius would eventually die. And he got Julian, the upstate, you know, become the emperor. Mm -hmm. He was a clever guy, or at least he thought he was a clever guy. So he he said, you know what? If I return Asenasius, you will get all these fights between the Orthodox and the Arians, and that would weaken Christianity, and it would be great. I can return the emperor back to its pagan glory. But that, that really didn't work out, at least in Egypt. So Asenasius, when he came back, he was like a, a hero. And like I said, Arians, by the end of Alexander's reign, they were very, they didn't have a lot of uh, presence in Egypt. So when Asenasius came back, instead of, you know, escalating divisions, the whole province of Egypt was behind him. And that really annoyed Julian. So he exiled Asenasius, basically said, you can return. And as soon as he came back, he said, you know what? But right after, you know, Julian dies. And there is like a great epic miracle on how he dies and how there is like a, a saint from the second century who speared him in the middle of the war with the Persians. It's a great story. I love it. I actually titled my episode about this epic, you know, miracle. Our sister podcast, Totalis Rankium, they, they rank the Roman emperors and they hated on Julian so hard for being so incredibly rubbish at this. So it's fantastic. But, uh, so, you know, Julian dies, his successor comes back, and he doesn't have any legitimacy, and he's not really very popular. And he's like, you know, you know who's popular? Asenasius. So he returns Asenasius, and he actually, you know, makes Asenasius to be like the Eusebius of Nicomedia. He was the closest bishop to the emperor, and Asenasius, you know, gets to set the policy. But, the emperor dies within like a couple of months. And the person who follows him, Valens, as soon as he came back, he was like, well, I can't have Asenesius on because that was the other guy, Bishop. So he exiles him. So basically you have 40 years. Asenesius is the patriarch of Alexandria. He gets exiled five times. And throughout the whole time, he's in a nonstop fight, both as a political figure and also as the Pope of Alexandria, because you got all the, the Aryan versus Orthodox stuff going on. You know, some people would give that, would say that was the major reasons he was exiled and came back. But, uh, you know, when you look into it, I think it's more of all the political intrigue of the time. These, these emperors, they're not really interested in, in, you know, who Jesus Christ is. They were more interested in ruling their empire. So, the couple of things that became clear in this long journey. The first was that uniformity in religion, in Christianity, was always going to be an imperial policy. No matter how, how, how big of a problem that's going to be. It's sort of like, you know, right now, in our modern times, the democratic process. No matter how bad or good the result of an election is, everybody, no one would say, you know what, democracy is a bad idea. Most people would say that democracy is not a bad idea. Everybody is behind the democratic process. In the same way, everybody was behind religious uniformity. There is no way you could do your own thing. And the second thing, that religious uniformity was impossible that day. Because even after all this, after a 40-year you know, fight and five exiles and seven emperors, Arianism was still very strong. 
you know, at least outside of Egypt. So when Asenasius died, saying at that time that he died, that Asenasius, you have wasted your life, wouldn't have been a lie. Because in front of his eyes, there was lots of Aryans, and they were doing very well. And it took like another 20 years or so until, you know, at least inside the, the Christian empire, where things kind of calmed down. But there was just no way that thing that religious uniformity. Yeah. They didn't get it. So we're going to see a lot of that with future popes as well, because there there is no such thing as religious uniformity in the early church or the modern church for that matter. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Athanasius and the papacy slash primacy of Rome. Do you think it's fair to say that Athanasius had a larger impact on Christianity than the popes of the era? That would be Mark and Julius and Liberius. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, if you really look into it, you know, up until Leo the Great, the narrative of historical Christianity was essentially driven by Alexandria, Constantinople, and Antioch. And I would argue that, at least from a historical perspective, the most important Western-based Christian figures until Leo the Great were Ambrose of Milan and Augustine, both of which were not the Pope. There were just, one was a bishop, and the other one was a theologian. This is true to a point, although we're getting to the point in the narrative right around this time where we see that start to shift, up until this point, it is the Pope among giants, often. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to make it sound like, you know, it was no influence, and all of a sudden Leo came out of nowhere. No, there was obviously gradual shifting, where the, the, the Popes of Rome saw it necessary to be involved more and assert that kind of primacy that you guys are, you know, that is associated with our mind. But it was it was a very slow development. And then once Leo and Damasus, they came along, they kind of like, you know, they, they pushed it. So what can we say Athanasius tells us about the potential for the primacy of the Pope? I hope that doesn't ruffle people's feathers, but able primacy in the 4th century was just not a thing yet. Not even the mild version, first among equals. There is not a single Alexandrian pope, which is a historically accurate term, by the way, even considered that concept. There would have been so far into them. Essentially, especially in the time of Athanasius, the geopolitics drove the theology. And Rome, at this point, was a political backwater. All the action was going on in Constantinople, and even the, the Western-based capital was Tyrrhir, which is in modern Germany. So that's where all the actions happened. And by the time even the Pope knew the news, it's, it was kind of too late. There's a fair amount of truth to that. The The Church of Rome as a legitimate body is still such a new concept at this moment in history. And the ongoing development of the concept of papal primacy will take ages to start to become what we would recognize as a legitimate supremacy. We should acknowledge that the argument of apostolic succession, of course, has been around since the very beginning of our popes, but manifesting that into an outreach of influence and authority in totality is, is quite new. Yeah, you know, you know who didn't care about apostolic succession? Eusebius of Nicomedia. He sure didn't. Yeah, I mean, he's, he was Eusebius of Nicomedia. What apostle did he succeed from? He didn't, he didn't come from anybody. And he still thought that he could excommunicate the Pope. Yeah! Yeah, it's directly after Athanasius' death 
that we see Pope Damasus truly begin to process the developing concept of and fighting for that idea of papal primacy over all aspects of the church. And one could make the argument, maybe, that because of what we see happening with someone like Athanasius, and because we don't see the popes of Alexandria or other major figures in the East recognizing the Bishop of Rome as their supreme authority in full at this time, although there are a couple moments, this becomes quite a pressing issue as we're getting here. Like you said, no Patriarch of Alexandria would have considered this a valid thing at this time, and that starts to make it more urgent. And so it's a more pressing issue. And obviously, Pope Damasus isn't entirely successful, so it's correct to say that the 4th century papal primacy is not yet a thing, but this, is, might, this might have been the moment in history where we see that need and that desire for extensive authority from the Bishop of Rome. So this is really an inspiration point. Yeah, it's true. So let's chat a little bit about the churches of Egypt, since that's more where you're going to be an excellent expert. So I want to talk about how Athanasius relates directly to the Copts and how he factors into Coptic Christianity. Like, what impact, if any, does his theology and the response he received have on the Coptic identity? Yeah, so, you know, if someone ever made a podcast where they ranked Coptic popes, it would be it would be kind of boring because he would be like a number one by a long shot. It wouldn't even be an argument. Right, that's season two. <laughs> the whole thing is like, who is, who's going to be number two? But number one would be Athanasius and it's done. So, you know, the Coptic Church gives him the honorific title, the apostolic. He's not the founder, that would be St. Mark, but in essence, he would end up serving as the inspiration for every single Coptic pope after him. His principled stand, it became a model for every single theological issue that came after him. And there's a bunch of theological controversies that came after him, and every single Coptic pope was like, oh, what would Athanasius do? And he pretty much stuck with it. We got the whole controversy about the title of Seudocles, and then you get the whole controversy that's arguably so to this day about the nature of Christ. Yes. Yeah, and both of these things, you know, the Coptic Pope said, this is what we believe in, and if you don't like it, well, you don't like it. So, and this is, I mean, it's, I don't want to, you know, have Athanasius be blamed when it comes to, to an extreme, but basically, they look this is what Athanasius had did, you know. Everybody was telling Athanasius to tone down a bit, but he was Athanasius contra mundo. Athanasius who's against the world, so. I think that's the best epithet to ever have. Yeah, I, I tried signing that once in my emails at work. It didn't really go really well. So, so, you know, the Coptic Cathedral in Cairo right now, it has the partial relics of two scenes. You get St. Mark, who's the founder, and you get St. Athanasius. And the symbolism behind that is, is it shouldn't be lost. You get some Mark who died a martyr, and you got Sanasanesius who lived a long life, but he fought to the end of his life to protect what he saw as a fundamental truth. So if there is two things, if I have to pick two things that basically forms the big foundation of the Coptic story of my podcast that I'm telling you, it would be martyrdom and that sort of uncompromising theology. I remember reading uh, a very, like, you know, kind of polemic Coptic historian, and he was you know, writing about 
the attitude of the, of the Coptic Church was Athanasius. And he, this is a direct quote. He was pretty much said, they told the whole world what they believed. And then when the world refused to listen, they walked away. And big part of that is Athanasius. True. Very true. So some of the other greatest figures for the Copts that you mentioned before are the Desert Fathers, like St. Anthony. So let's dig into this a little bit, because obviously Athanasius had a very strong relationship with St. Anthony. Do, do the Desert Fathers still have that ongoing legacy in the churches of Egypt beyond just monasticism as a whole? And what is the impact of Athanasius's time with the Desert Fathers? Because you know, we talked about him popularizing this lifestyle in a way. So does that resonate still for the Coptic identity? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, monasticism is how monasticism goes. It's basically how the church, the Coptic church goes. And this is, was the other great legacy of Athanasius, how he developed that ideal relationship with monasticism. Because at the time, before, before his time, and essentially in the beginning of his, of his, uh, of his elevation as a patriarch, Christian monasticism was very new and it was outside all the normal structure of the church. So you had bishops looking at monks with suspicion. They were a competing spiritual authority. And usually if you became a monk, then you could not be a priest that excluded you from the normal structure of the, of the church. But when Athanasius came, he changed all of that. And through his partnership with Antony, they essentially transformed both the church and monasticism. He basically made monasticism as a fortress to maintain the theological independence of the Coptic Church and shield it from all the kind of imperial policy that was going on. Monks, generally, they're very difficult to pressure into, you know, accepting a politically convenient position. Because, you know, monks have left the world. They don't have any money. They don't have any... They're supposed to be dead to the world. So when, when, an, when you know, a governor comes in and says, this is the new imperial policy when it comes to religion, the monks usually said, no, we're not going to do that. And there's not much they can do about it. Like I said, they're supposed to be dead to the world. Because of that, cultivating a relationship between the official church hierarchy and the monastic elements became very, very important for the Bishop of Alexandria. And Athanasius and Antony were the first to show the fruits of that partnership. In a perfect world, the Bishop of Alexandria, he would be supported by the people, be supported by the government, and he would be supported by the monks. But really, time and time again, when it comes down to it, if he has the monks alone, that would be good enough. So, San Asanasius, you know, he didn't only leave that model for Egypt. You know, like I said before, that life of St. Antony, it basically became the ancient bestseller at the time, and monasteries would end up being all over Europe and Asia Minor. How monasticism developed it would obviously be, be different inside Egypt and outside Egypt because the Copts ended up being isolated once the, got the caliphate. But the, the basic idea will stay the same. And to this day, if you go to Egypt, you've got hundreds of monasteries all over the desert, including, that's my favorite, the spot where Antony became the father of monasticism. And it's basically, it's on the Red Sea. You go up, they call it a mountain but it's more of a hell. And when you go up there, you just have the expanse of the desert in front of your eyes, and there's nothing more beautiful 
you know, that I have seen. Fry, we need to do that as some sort of like write-off research trip and go and see this. Yeah. I am so down for that. So much Egypt stuff to see. So I want to finish with one question that amuses me greatly. So because I made Fry read out the Nicene Creed twice in our exploration of the Council of Nicaea, someone wrote in and asked on Twitter if I was also going to make her read the Athanasian Creed, which I thought sounds like a good torture method. Why do you hurt me so? <laughs> I just want to give your voice airtime because I spend most of the time talking on this podcast. So uh, I, I want to talk about the Athanasian Creed for a moment and dispel some myths. So tell us about it. Yeah, so when people that I know, like at work or church or whatever, that I know in real life, they ask me about, you know, what's your podcast about? So usually, you know, I get excited and talk about it. And no matter how much I try, Athanasius gets in there. And then the response is usually something along the lines of, you know, oh, my friend has a cat named Athanasius. That's amazing. <laughs> I want a cat named Athanasius. It's kind of a little bit traumatizing to my ear, hearing that. Should I tell you that I have a dog named Pachacuti after the Incan emperor? <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. You know, this guy is not my hero, but Asinesius is, so... Oh, fair enough. So, you know, and then the other thing that I hear was, uh, oh, this is the guy who wrote the Asinesian Creed. But guess what? He had nothing to do with the Asinesian Creed. In a matter of fact... Athanasius, any kind of creed that was different than the one written in Nicaea, or at least minor variation on it, he would not like it at all. The Athanasian creed was essentially a medieval creation that someone was like, oh, you know, I'm going to write this thing and uh, I want people to read it, so I'm going to write that Athanasius have wrote it. So he attached his name to it to make it sound legitimate. Like the Liber Pontificalis. Yeah, so, you know, when, like when people studied it, it's clearly was written in Latin, and Athanasius mostly wrote in Greek. He probably knew a little bit of Latin because he lived in Rome for a bit, but not enough to write like a sophisticated theological uh, creed. Not to mention, like if you go to the, to the Eastern churches, no one knows what the Athanasian Creed is. So you know, it's uh, when the last I looked into it, people. The consensus was it probably came from somewhere in France, 6th or the 7th century. Definitely not Egypt. Definitely not Egypt or Athanasius. So, you know, his writing, by the way, most of his writing, a lot of it, not most, a lot of it is, you know, survived because he's obviously a very popular guy and people wrote and copied and circulated his life, his writing all over the East. So if he wrote that Athanasian Creed, it'll it would have survived somewhere in there, but it didn't. So I just want to end by, if you know the guy who's in charge of these things, please have him change the title of that creed. All right, listeners, you have a task. You have a task ahead of you. Let's find out who's in charge and get it changed. <laughs> Go find him and fight him. We will fight him together. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. This was absolutely fantastic. We were so, so glad to have you on. Tell us, again, where we can find your podcast for all of the people who are now desperate to listen. Yeah, so the podcast is the History of the Cops. If you search that on iTunes, it should come up. It's also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, all the usual stuff. If you try and you can't find it for whatever reason, 
uh, you can find the Facebook page. You can find also the, the podcast on Twitter. So, so yeah, if you, you know, I would love for you to come and listen. And you know, if someone has feedback to me, you know, a lot of people reached out. I love to hear it. So, and we will definitely leave a link in the show notes as well, so that people can find you directly. So, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This was great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was exciting. I loved it. I love to talk about Asenesius anytime. You are our first collaborator on our Baby Pope podcast, so that's Woo-hoo. super, super awesome. I feel that's a great historical moment. It is. It definitely is. So I guess with that, uh, the only person we're going to thank today is you for being here. So we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.